Some bonds last a lifetime. Some bonds inspire confidence. And some you grow to rely on. These are the bonds worth investing in. For nearly 50 years, PIMCO has reinvented fixed income to create opportunities for investors in every market environment. So no matter what happens, you can build the bonds that mean the most to you. PIMCO, a global leader in active fixed income. Learn more at PIMCO.com bonds. All investments contain risk and may lose value. Consult your investment professional before investing. My mission is simple, to make you money. I'm here to level the playing field for all investors. There's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise to help you find it. Mad Money starts now. Hey, I'm Kramer. Welcome to Mad Money. Welcome to Kramerica. Other people want to make friends, I'm just trying to make you some money. My job is not just to entertain, but to educate and teach you. So call me at 1-800-743-CBC or tweet me at Jim Kramer. For all the time we spend agonizing over the prospect of a deal with China, Wall Street sure doesn't seem to put a lot of thought into figuring out who actually wins and who loses if this trade war is allowed to continue. Oh, we'll parse every word coming out of the Trump administration to figure out their intentions. One minute, the relatively free traders like Kudlow and Mnuchin have us believing that a deal is imminent. The next minute, the hardliners make it clear that they're happy to keep the tariffs going, even raise them until the Chinese government makes some very fundamental changes to the way it does business, especially because their economy is slowing, while ours is doing just fine. Thank you. That was easy. This morning, the averages opened strong after we heard that President Trump might be willing to hold a summit with his Chinese counterpart at Mar-a-Lago in the near future, maybe play some golf. But then we spent the whole session drifting back down, Dow ultimately sinking 53 points, S&P inching up ever so slightly, 0.07%, NASDAQ advancing just 0.13%. Why the retreat? Yeah, of course, fears that the talks are not going to go well. We're obsessed with the logic of deal or no deal. I get it. The tariffs from $200 billion for the Chinese exports to the United States are set to rise from 10 to 25% in less than a month. And if that happens, well, you better believe the Chinese will retaliate. Here's the problem. Everyone's trying to play this Chinese version of deal or no deal, but I think they're playing it wrong. Specifically, they're playing it with the wrong stocks. This earnings season has revealed some brutal truths about the China trade with don't, that just don't jive with the, let's say, conventional wisdom, okay? We act like the winners and the losers, all right, are, from the trade war are obvious. But the reality is a lot more nuanced than that. Many companies that should be hurting in the People's Republic have been putting up some astonishing numbers, while others are being torn to pieces by increased competition or the slowing Chinese economy. So if you want to play deal or no deal, I don't blame you with the trade war. Well, let me tell you how to do it right. First, when the Chinese tensions soar, traders instinctively bet against the stocks of iconic American consumer brands, as well as the capital goods and technology companies. The first have held up surprisingly well, the second group's mixed bag, and the third, well, let's just say it's been in the real doghouse. These traders aren't idiots. When they saw the trade war heating up, they shorted the stocks of Nike, Starbucks, Estee Lauder, and Yum China, betting that Chinese consumers would steer clear of these uniquely American brands that have done so well over the years in China. But that bet, it just hasn't paid off. Nike and Starbucks both reported an acceleration in sales this bit, right? Acceleration, can you imagine? In fact, Nike even had its biggest singles day ever. That's that made-up consumption holiday where the Communist Party lets a bazillion presents bloom, up 40% versus last year. 
fueled by a combination of basketball fanaticism and a government partnership to encourage athletics. Nike's biggest problem in the PRC? High-quality problem, making enough shoes to meet the demand. Starbucks had a strong recovery. Same-store sales climbing to 4% in the latest quarter, when they seemed to be trending negative coming into the quarter. Yum China's numbers weren't fabulous, but they didn't experience the kind of horrific collapse that so many of the short sellers expected. Same-store sales up 2%. Now, Nike stock got slammed from the low 80s, okay, in early October when Vice President Pence stepped up the anti-China rhetoric down to 66 at the zenith of the bear market, and has since rebounded to $83. Starbucks went from about 60 when Pence got aggressive to 54 at its lows, to nearly 70 now. This one's on fire. Yum China never really got hit, pulling back from 33 to 30 before exploding higher. It's now 41. Nice move. What else? Oh, get this one. EL, Estee Lauder, it's been astounding, especially after last week's spectacular quarter. At the beginning of October, this was a $140 stock. It then plunged to as low as $121. Trade worries mounting. But since then, wow. Since the bottom, it surged to $153 as of today. China's actually been one of its strongest markets, called out many times by the fantastic Fabrizio Freda in a just, just clinic, a clinic of a conference call. These big-name consumer brands have been terrible shorts. Good longs. So keep that in mind the next time people start panicking about how we're making no progress in negotiating China. Bye, bye, bye. How about capital goods names? Much, much tougher. Boeing came into the Pence collision flying high at around 390. Then really got decked at the Christmas Eve lows, falling to 294 before a gorgeous quarter helped the stock soar back to an all-time high. A dreamliner of a stock, 413 just last week. But Emerson Electric's had a lot more trouble rebounding. It's a great industrial, but it fell from 78 to 55 at its lows before bouncing to 66 and no further. Large part, I think, because of the Chinese slowdown. Here's a real curious one. United Technology, and you know I love this company, gets a lot of its growth from China. Its stock sank from 141 in early October. 101 Christmas Eve low. It's still only back to 122, despite management's brilliant decision to break up the company. Puzzling. Has business in China, like the Otis Elevator business. 3M has a, a lot of faltering markets on its hands, including China. Their Chinese business has actually improved of late, but the stock's still down from 215 before Pence's Sabre Island to 200 now. I don't know. It's getting frustrating. Caterpillar, lots of moving parts here, too. But the stock's going from 158 in early October to 112 after it's not so hot third quarter before limping back to 128 now. Not great. Finally, there's tech, and this is the one group with China exposure that has been truly terrible. There are a whole host of them, but the elephant in the room is Apple. Once again today, hit by China fears. Darn stock was at 233 before it ran into the Mike Pence buzzsaw. Then it fell to 142 after the hideous pre-announcement at the beginning of the year, thanks to massive slowdown in Apple's Chinese business. Since then, the stock's been making a comeback with good reasons, now at 169. However, last week, Tony Saganegi from Bernstein Research said things have gotten worse causing the stock to pull back from its recent highs. Fellow travelers like Skyworks Solutions, NVIDIA, Micron, three semiconductor companies with a ton of China exposure. Also, their stock's obliterated. Even after telling a good story last week, Skyworks has fallen 92 in early October to 81 today. But how about this? A pit stop at 61 after the Apple pre-announcement. NVIDIA's plunged from 289 to 146. Micron pummeled from 45 to 28 at its lowest. Although, like Skyworks, is making a comeback, $38. Investors betting on a bottom. Uh, Morgan Stanley, by the way, doesn't believe in the bottom, just so you know. What do these winners and losers tell us? It's really important that you know this. First, the consumer stocks that are holding up in China, they all share one trait. They have unassailable brands with little Chinese competition. You hear that? 
Little Chinese competition. There's really nothing like Starbucks and PRC yet. Yum China, KFC slope, not enough to give the short sellers a win. Estee Lauder's practically peerless. Nike, uh, Chinese sneakers, I don't know any. How about the industrials? I think they got dinged, uh, not by the trade war, but by the slowdown in China. You just can't get traction if you're selling capital goods there because the market is cooled. Plus, the strong dollar gives their Japanese competitors an advantage on price. Boeing, oh, that's just a glorious secular win. While Boeing sells a quarter of its planes to China, guess what? The Chinese need Boeing more than Boeing needs China. Tech's the real triumph for the short sellers because the Chinese government's made it difficult for Apple to do well. The cheaper, more patriotic, if you go buy the Huawei phone, I mean, Remember, Huawei is considered to be an outcast by the United States. That makes Apple more of an outcast than Apple should be in China. NVIDIA has been crushed by a government-mandated slowdown in Chinese gaming. Of course, they also have a crypto problem. The bottom line, if this market gets hammered on China fears later this week, and I expect it will, use that pullback to buy and write this down. Nike, Starbucks, Estee Lauder, and Yum China, not to mention Boeing. Beware of the industrials with Chinese exposure and expect pain in the techs with Chinese business. Sure, there's some wild cards, but now you have your cheat sheet and a much better sense of who's being hurt and who's doing just fine. Let's go to Will in my old home state of Pennsylvania. Will! Hey, Jim. Kindred spirit, booyah. My I like dad that. Sold for, my dad sold for 3M for over 20 years. Uh, and what? He started, I'm sorry? Started me off on the 3M bookshelf game, Stocks and Bonds. Pop sold, uh, acquire uh, Stocks and Bonds, Twix, and, of course, he had the Sashin franchise, and he had the Scotch State franchise. So uh, we're in, we are indeed in the same boat. How can I help you? Okay, uh, my stock was uh, I bought before earnings uh, two quarters ago at 40, and uh, the stock went down to the mid-20s, had good earnings this uh, past quarter, and it's up 20% in the last week. I'd like your long-term view on Skechers, SKX. You know, frankly, it's become too hard to have a long-term view on Skechers. Sometimes you have to own that. I know this stock had a big move last week, and I'm thrilled for the guys. But it's just too hard for me. Sometimes you got to just say, it's too hard. How about Greg in California, please? Greg. Hi, Jim. Hi, Greg. My name's Greg. I'm a, I'm a Marine Corps veteran living in Los Angeles. Well, I thank you for your service. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. I'm also a huge fan of your show. Oh, thank you. <laughs> um, so my question, I purchased shares of Phillips 66 last week prior to earnings at $91.72. Now, I know there's notable institutions that hold positions like Berkshire, mm-hmm. BlackRock, and Vanguard Group. Now, given that the earnings per share and the refinery margins were great and daily volume has been above average, I'd like to know your outlook on the stock following the revenue slip right. and also the Wood River refinery fire over the weekend in Illinois. Yeah, that was very unfortunate. Uh, I have to tell you that the stock wasn't down. I was rather surprised because that was bad. I will say this. I do prefer Marathon, Pete, but I think you've made a good, good sele- uh, selection with, with Philip 66. I would hold on to it. And again, thank you for serving in the Marines. All right. If you put a little thought into it, I think you can identify some patterns that can help your portfolio weather the storm. So if the market gets hit on China worries, steer clear of the industrials with China exposure and use the dip to buy some great old American names, Starbucks, Nike, Estee Lauder. And you know what? I, I really think, you know, it's, it's just tough to tell how good those names can be, but even Yum China. Oh, man, buddy, tonight, transports are heading higher today. Norfolk Southern leading the charge. I'm talking to the CEO to find out if you can take your portfolio full steam ahead. 
Then trouble in Toyland. Hasbro's taking a tumble as it continues to work through the demise of Toys R Us and all that inventory in the system. I'm sitting down with the CEO after last week's earnings shortfall to see what it means for the toy maker. And if the U.S. had kept pace with Norway and adding women to the workforce, get this, U.S. economy would be 1.6 trillion, that's with a T, larger today. I'm eyeing one company working to create a change when it comes to gender equality. I hope you'll like them. Stay with Kramer. Don't miss a second of Mad Money. Follow at Jim Kramer on Twitter. Have a question? Tweet Kramer. Hashtag Mad Tweets. Send Jim an email to madmoney at CNBC.com or give us a call at 1-800-743-CNBC. Miss something? Head to madmoney.cnbc.com. I want people to feel like they just learned something. We have journalists in the far corners of the universe. I can't wait to get all of those resources under one hour-long newscast where we can deliver the facts of the day clearly and concisely in context and with perspective and tell people what's happening, what it all means. Get the truth, not the spin. The News with Shepard Smith. Subscribe to the podcast today. There's a quiet revolution going on in the railroad industry. Over the last couple of years, we've seen CSX and Union Pacific embrace what's known as precision railroading. It's an ultra-efficient way to route trains pioneered by the late, great Hunter Harrison, and his vision keeps spreading. Today, Norfolk Southern, the other big East Coast rail, aside from CSX, held an analyst meeting where the company laid out a bold and terrific vision to boost its productivity and efficiency. In other words, they're getting in on the precision railroading game, too. Norfolk Southern wants to bring its operating ratio, the ratio of expenses to net sales, down from 65% to 60% by 2021. At the same time, the company told a good story about the broader economic environment, which is why the stock surged $5.49, or 3.2% today, on a ho-hum day. And that's on top of a massive rally since the December lows, fueled in part by the terrific quarter the company reported less late last month. So let's dig in with James Squires. He's the chairman and CEO of Norfolk Southern. Learn more about his plans for this great American railroad. Mr. Squires, welcome back to Mad Money. Thanks for having me on the show, Jim. All right. Well, this was a dramatic meeting. And I want, uh, Jim, for you to explain to our viewers what the message is uh, you're trying to convey about reimagining your great railroad. Well, Jim, I want to start by saying how proud I am of our employees and what they have accomplished the last few years. We started out in 2015 with a plan to get to a, an operating ratio below 65 uh, by 2020. Last year, we closed out uh, at 65.4, so nearly there uh, in 2018. We just announced today our plan to get to a 60 operating ratio by 2021. And uh, that will be through a combination of uh, precision railroading practices that will help us bring down cost and growth in the top line. Well, but let me tell you my confusion. All right, when I first met you, the stock was about 66. Now it's at 177. You have returned a gigantic amount of money to shareholders. You just mentioned the 740 basis point decline in expenses. What I'm confused about is why did you need to even switch to precision precision railroading? Maybe you can explain it to me because as far as I was concerned, you were pretty precise. Well, Jim, we are proud of what we've accomplished, and we've we've done a lot. Uh, But we can do more, and uh, that's our commitment to our shareholders uh, to get the operating ratio down even even lower uh, through that combination of precision railroading 
and through continued growth in the top line. We're in a great growth environment, and we want to be sure to, to capitalize on that in, uh, in top line growth as well. So will there be uh, fewer locomotives, uh, better placement of where they are, more on-time trains? Is that what it figures in? Yes, precision railroading is all about utilizing employees, utilizing locomotives, utilizing freight cars, utilizing all railroad assets as efficiently as possible. So that's a big focus in our new plan. Uh, and that's a big contributor to the, the lower operating ratio by 2021. But we're also focused on growth. We remain in a great growth environment. We think we have both secular and cyclical growth opportunities ahead. I'm so, I'm so glad you mentioned that because we're, there's a lot of pervasive gloom on Wall Street. One of it is, is that so there are a lot of people talking about we're going to have a recession this year. Others are saying there's going to be a dramatic slowdown. To me, I look at what you're projecting and I see a good year. And not only that, but some of your lines like automotive, you're getting more bullish on. When we look at, at both the, the macro indicators and when we do our channel checks, uh, we feel good about the current business environment. And we do think we have growth opportunities with our customers this year. So overall, the, uh, the climate looks good to us. Now, you had a record revenue number for Intermodal, and maybe you can explain to people why this is such a profitable business, both for you, but also for your clients. Well, we had a great year uh, in Intermodal in 2018, and that was on the heels of a good year in 2017 as well. So Intermodal has been our growth engine for quite some time, and we expect it to continue to be. Uh, trucking remains tight. It's difficult to hire truck drivers, and uh, that's our main form of competition in the intermodal business. We have terrific channel partners in intermodal, uh, and so we remain bullish on intermodal. Margins have improved. It's just a great space to be in, and we have a terrific franchise. Now, a couple of the analysts, and I know that the meeting just ended, but they've already come out. I'll just quote them. Uh, Credit Suisse says your targets are aggressive. Uh, Deutsche Bank says they are ambitious. Both of them a little skeptical that you can reach these levels in such a short period of time. What do you tell the skeptics? Well, this is an aggressive plan, it's, it's a, but it's an achievable plan. We have a great deal of confidence we can get there with, uh, with the backing of our employees and the hard work of, of everybody on the railroad out there. It's a plan that relies on precision railroading uh, to drive the cost reductions. And it's a, pl- a plan that relies on the Great Norfolk Southern franchise to get a- generate the growth and get us to that 60 operating ratio by 2020. Now, when I read through the uh, presentation, it was really terrific. Uh, one of your people did talk about how you had precision railroading going in one area, in, a- in one hump, so to speak. It's not new to you, but it just seems like it's now going to spread along your gigantic network. That's true. We really began this journey last year. Uh, We started doing something we call clean sheeting, which is essentially re-engineering operations in the field. You just take a look at everything you're doing. You try to get the waste out of it. We're working with our customers, bringing them into this so that it is a collaborative process with our customers. And we've just been picking up speed. We hit an inflection point with it late last year, and we've gained momentum in 2019. So uh, it's, uh, we're hitting on all cylinders with the uh, precision railroading. At the same time, we're, we're continuing to drive growth in the top line. All right. Now, I deal with a lot of the utilities that happen to be in your area because a lot of straight shooting people, and they want to do the right thing for the environment. They're deeply committed to that. I'm not, I know there's cynics out there saying that they're not, but they are. And yet I saw a big increase in coal. Where is that coal going? Well, we have a a diversified coal franchise. Uh, We send coal to U.S. utilities. We also uh, help our customers export coal overseas. 
the, the U.S.-based coals are primarily utilities, as mentioned, uh, but also for making steel, metallurgical coal going to our steel manufacturing customers. The coal going overseas is a combination of metallurgical coal uh, and steam coal as well. Now, you can, uh, there's a huge renaissance in this country of involving chemicals, natural gas, oil. You figure in, and I noticed that Marcellus Utica, we visited Marcellus Utica years ago, and there really wasn't that much happening. If I go there now, would I discover a natural gas uh, renaissance there? You would, absolutely. And that's, uh, that's, that's a big contributor to our industrial products franchise as well. We handle a lot of commodities. Uh, and those are things like uh, sand headed impound uh, that's used in the Marcellus region for fracking. Uh, we also handle a lot of chemical pr- chemicals that are manufactured uh, in our service territory or beyond that are beneficiaries of uh, cheap and abundant natural gas. Wow. Well, look, I, Jim, I want to congratulate you again. I mean, I was I was taken aback because you're one of the best. You, you run one of the best performing stocks since we started the show. But obviously, you're not going to rest in your laurels. Congratulations to Jim Squires and the new plan, chairman, CEO of Norfolk Southern, where they're going to make even more money for shareholders. Man, money's back after the break. years, there was a very clear hierarchy among the toy companies. You had Hasbro, the top dog, up more than 90% over the past five years. And then you had Mattel, that mangy mutt with a dog-like performance, down nearly 50% of the same period. And then you had the rest of the industry, too really small to be uh, to mention. Hasbro was just better. They had great businesses like Transformers, Nerf, My Little Pony, Play-Doh, a bunch of games, everything from Monopoly to Magic Card, Dungeons and Dragons. They had the best licensed toys. Hey, Disney, think about that. Star Wars, the Marvel comic action figures. But on Friday, the two big toy makers kind of flipped the script here. Mattel reported a solid top and bottom line beat for once, and its stock folded 23% single session. Hasbro reported a big shortfall, reporting a, it was uh, more than 30 cent earnings miss on the bottom line, with sales coming in lower than expected. The reason, turns out, Hasbro's big brands were hit extra hard by the liquidation, the endless liquidation of Toys R Us, something that's been continued themed since, well, I don't know, since they went under last year. Initially, Hasbro stock got obliterated, tumbling from 93 to 85. It's, it's lows on Friday. Then the thing that rebounded dramatically, closing at 89 and change after a more optimistic conference call. It was a great one. Management explained that the company would return to growth this year as they anniversary the Toys R Us liquidation. I think this is a very well-run company. Deserves the benefit of the doubt. Been a rough time, though. So let's take a closer look at Brian Golder. He's the straight-shooting chairman and CEO of Hasbro. You hear more about the difficulties in the fourth quarter, but also why things are going to get better. Brian, welcome back to Mad Money. Hi, Jim. How are you doing? I'm good. Now, you said it point blank. You said, listen, these problems finally with this Toys R Us liquidation are finite and you're going to leave them in 2018. But how do you know? Because it keeps feeling I keep feeling that there's toys in the channel everywhere from Hasbro that were never meant to be there. Well, remember, from 2012 to 2017, we generated an average revenue growth rate of 5 percent. Our net earnings grew double digits. We expanded our operating margin all before the Toys R Us bankruptcy. It was a disruptive year. It interrupted our growth. And in 2019, we returned to growth. And we believe that over the next year or two, we get back to where we were and we drive forward. We have an amazing array of products and toys and games and brand initiatives. And we have cleaned up inventories. In Europe, the inventories, retail inventories are down 27%. In the US, retail inventories are down 24%, minus 6%, absent Toys R Us. 
So we're really set up for a great 2019 with many of the major initiatives you were talking about. Now, tell us about what let's do same store, same store inventory that was not with Toys R Us. How did those new products do so that we can get a fair like for like competition going rather than just look at what was in the channel? Yes, what's really interesting is we have many brands that have been growing over a number of years. Nerf, for example, had been growing double digits over the last five years. That's the kind of brand that Toys R Us would support really substantially. Our games business, similarly, had been growing over a number of years, and it had been supported by Toys R Us. Others have commented that their big brands that had been perennials had been supported by Toys R Us. Whereas where we have big brands with new initiatives, Transformers in the fourth quarter was up substantially behind brand new product around Bumblebee and the movie, and uh, it did really well. Uh, Monopoly was up, Magic the Gathering, Dungeons and Dragons, a whole host of quick strike initiatives from Lost Kitties to Yellies. Uh, we've seen some growth in other games of our business and great momentum in our Play-Doh business. So what we see is that Brands that had been supported for years by Toys R Us clearly were impacted. We see it as a disruption and an interruption in our growth. But as we go forward, we're absolutely confident that we get back to the growth trajectory that we had been on over the number of years. Right, well, one of the things that most excited me, obviously, during the Toys R Us period, you have pivoted to a digital-first retail mix. And also, this is the first time where I start hearing things like Nerf Fortnite, and I hear about magic. And, you know, I'm starting to think about what happened with the electronic arts in the last few days. You may have some Battle Royale kind of features buried within Hasbro that are about to come out, don't you? We, we really do. In fact, we've been working for some time on Magic Arena. Magic Arena is an online game that you can play Magic the Gathering. We're in open beta right now. Uh, just through the fourth quarter in our open beta, we've had 350 million people play the game. They're spending on average eight hours a week playing the game. We've just announced our eSports initiative. We've got a $10 million prize pool. We've got uh, more announcements about when we'll launch. We'll have uh, pro players playing Magic the Gathering. It's now a top 10 game on Twitch being viewed. So there's Magic the Gathering. In terms of Nerf, a brand new array of innovation coming for that brand. Fortnite is certainly coming in the spring as well as Overwatch. As we get into the fall, we're going to have more proprietary innovation. And frankly, innovations that we aren't going to present quite as early as we used to. They're protectable, and we want to ensure that the consumer insights we're garnering and the innovation we're creating, we're not sharing too early with the world because it's a very competitive category. Now, do you think, is that part of the reason why I was quite surprised you still put through an 8% dividend increase, even though uh, obviously there were Toys R Us problems? I mean, you must clearly think that 2019 is the year of the comeback. Well, our board has been very supportive of our dividend policy. We've increased the dividend 15 of the last 16 years. We really believe in our business. We really view this as a disruption. And let me remind you that the liquidation didn't end until the end of June of 2018. So we only had two quarters, our two most important quarters, to clear that inventory that we were putting in the market up against liquidated inventory. For example, on Nerf. That liquidation, because of its strong support by Toys R Us, led them to liquidate 2 million units of Nerf product at low price. So obviously that's competitive with product we're trying to put in the market. But after the first quarter, 2019, this is the last quarter where we shipped Toys R Us in the United States last year, 
we move forward. So everyone should note that we did ship product in the first quarter of 18. As we move forward, 2019 is all about growth and expansion of operating profit margin, new initiatives and innovations, an incredible entertainment slate led by our own brands. We launched Power Rangers in the second quarter. It's a brand we acquired last year. We're very excited about a new original television series. Our retailers are very excited, and that's going to be a big global initiative for us. It'll roll out. So again, we'll get back on that trajectory that we had been on and a track record our management team has accomplished over the last few years. One last quick question. Uh, is there room for a resurgent Mattel and Hasbro? You know, it's not a zero-sum game. You know, the industry has been growing over the last number of years. Obviously, went backward last year. It was the, really the worst year, according to NPD, in the last 10 years. We've seen the industry grow. The projections are low to mid-single-digit growth. We've said we can grow uh, mid-single digits as we move forward over time and double-digit earnings of what we've been able to create. So we're very excited about what we have, the lineup that we have, our partners at Disney, an amazing array of new initiatives coming from them and movies from Avengers into a new Star Wars and, of course, Frozen at the Thanksgiving period. So excitement for our partner brands, which represent 20 to 25 percent of our revenues, and then also for our owned and operated brands, which is the 75 percent of our business. And so we're very excited about 2019 and 2020 and beyond. Well, I don't blame you because that's what happens when you see a shortfall and the stock barely goes down. That's a sign of a bottom one. Thanks so much. Brian Goldner, Chairman and CEO of Hasbro. You see why I want to stick with this stock. A lot of great things going on here. That money's back after the break. When the stock market went into free fall late last year, a host of fabulous long-term outperformers suddenly seemed to lose their mojo. Take S&P Global, SPGI, the company formerly known as McGraw Hill Financial. S&P is mainly a ratings agency. They're part of a trio of companies that rank the creditworthiness of bonds, which is a huge business. But the company also has a market intelligence division where they provide professional money managers with the data and analytics tools they need to do their jobs. And, of course, S&P Global runs all those S&P and Dow Jones indices along with a host of others. Uh, anyone who makes an ETF based on S&P it, it ends up paying them some money. Now, like nearly everything else, S&P Global stock then pulled back dramatically in the fourth quarter, bottoming the day after Christmas, and then making a stunning comeback ever since. It's now 14% just this year, even as it reported a pretty serious slowdown in one of its core businesses. No matter, the bottom line was terrific. Let's dig deeper with Doug Peterson. He's the president and CEO of S&P Global. Find out more about how his company's doing and where it's headed. Mr. Peterson, welcome back to Mad Money. Good to see you, Doug. Have a seat. Yeah, great to be here. Well, Thank you so much. You did something remarkable. I want people to talk about the talk about this transformation. There was a time where you had dramatic. If you had dramatic debt issuance decline, your company really would not have the kind of bottom line. You had an amazing bottom line. You've reinvented this company. Well, if you think about it, it, we are not just a rating agency. We also have, you talked about in your opening segment, but the, to have these subscription businesses with Platts and Market Intelligence, and then the, sometimes there's actually a, almost a, an upside when you have some kind of issues in ratings. You've got the index business, which is picking up the volatility and, and doing very well in that kind of an environment. But it's still, I mean, 19% global debt issuance decrease, and yet you had a huge amount of profit doing big buybacks. I mean, that's a fantastically profitable business you have. 
Well, if you think about it, what we did over the last five years is we, we narrowed down our focus and everything we do is about markets. Every single one of our businesses is focused on information, intelligence, insights for markets. It's, it's opinions, it's data, it's analytics, and, and we narrowed it down so everything we do has one type of customer. There are a lot of people worried about the China trade war. I don't know if they saw what happened with you. You just got the first of its kind approval to enter China's domestic bond market. Maybe we're re- misreading the Chinese. Well, this is a long-term play. I, I have this theory, and I've been working on it for years, that China is the largest trade economy in the world. And if they really want to have a, a power in the market, they've got to have a financial market. And a financial market requires a bond market. And so we've been working with the Chinese for a year, with the regulators, with the central bank, to point out the importance of having a bond market, a yield curve, and a credit curve. And so as part of that, we were able to get the first license ever for a 100% wholly owned rating agency in China. Now, how big can that get? I know it's a small audience, it's small a group of people in your company are working on it now, but that could easily be gigantic. It could be gigantic. It's right now the Chinese market's the third largest bond market in the world after the U.S. and Japan. Um, but mostly it's really a bank market. Even the bonds get issued go onto bank balance sheets. But there's almost 4,000 issuers right now in already in China getting having a wow, I didn't know that. domestic bond market. We okay. rate 400 Chinese companies today in the offshore dim sum market in Hong Kong. Wow, that's great because we always we're just thirsting for knowledge. One of the things I'm really proud of you doing, you just got to do it. You, no one else really did this in the corporate world. You have a tremendous amount of respect for Jack Bogle and what he accomplished. And why don't you tell our viewers what he really did for investing? Well, what he really did for investing is he put in place a very simple index approach to investing. This, and, and we benefited from that. In 1976, he developed the first ever index fund. It was the Vanguard 500. It's based on the S&P 500. And over the last 10 years alone, the investors in, in the different S&P funds that we have have saved over $150 billion in fees. And this is just- Billion, this it's is, billion people. This is Jack Bogle. He, he created an industry, not just a fund. Uh, I know a lot of people, actually, or when they get off the desk, they're saying, oh, that son of a gun, he wrecked our margins. But what he cared about was you, the investor. He was looking at the ultimate investor. Who is the person he's trying to protect their interests or look out for their interests? And that was the fireman, the teacher, the nurse, the doctor. Somebody that's investing their own money every day, and they want something that's simple, that's easy to understand, and it tracks the market. Oh, I think the the other thing you did besides just pay him the homage that I wanted to see so so important. Out of nowhere, uh, but not because I know you, so it's not really out of nowhere, but you've decided to make a big statement about gender inequality. There are not enough executives, as someone with two daughters, who really believes the system's rigged. Not enough executives doing what you do. Well, what we did is we have this approach to our community uh, where we're going to talk about our people. We have partnerships, which is our philanthropy. We also have our products, and we do research. And in our research the last couple of years, we've been looking at what would be the impact on markets if women had a higher participation rate. And we used Norway as, as kind of the benchmark. In the United States, if we were operating at the same level of women's participation as Norway, our economy would be 8% bigger, $1.6 trillion larger than it is right now. And there are a lot of companies, when you actually peel back the onion, they don't have a lot of women at top levels. It's, it's really something that all of us have to work on, including our own company. We're only at about 35% in our women in our uh, management force. We have a third of our board as women. But there's a lot to do. But it starts with a tone at the top. And we, we believe that starts with our board. It starts with me. And we also have a lot more to do ourselves. Okay, You've also made some acquisitions. I, I know Rate Watch because you bought it from the, the street. And I remember us when we bought Rate Watch. But we often hear at CNBC about Kensho. 
And that's like a bit of artificial intelligence married to financial tech. How's that working? Oh, it's going really well. We, we did some work over the last couple of years to see what do our customers need. And our customers are drowning in data. They're drowning in information, stuff they get from the markets, but also what they generate in their own companies. And we needed to figure out how can we make more sense of it. We've got a data background, and we were a data company before we even knew it. Right. But bringing in somebody like Kensho, who has the artificial intelligence and the machine learning, the algorithms they can layer on top of it, it's, it's just been a perfect match. Now, last thing, I am worried, said this this morning on TV, that I am really worried about the, the budget deficits, not from my side. Well, I'll be fine in my lifetime. How about my grandkids? I mean, it seems, Doug, I'm worried. Well, you know, it, it's a long-term issue. If you ask me about some of the, the list of issues that I worry about in the long run, I do have the, the debt. And it's not just the United States. It's many markets around the world. We're going to have to find ways to balance budgets over time. I don't think it's a near-term issue we okay. have to deal with, but it's one of the things that's difficult about that is that most politicians have a very short-term cycle, a right. re-election cycle, and it's, so it's hard to really deal with problems that go way beyond the election cycle. Wow. Wow. All right. Look, I want to circle back because I really want to leave this message again. That's how important it is, including you'll tell me the hashtag. What inspired you? Uh, many executives give lip service. They say, oh, yeah, we got to do better with women. What inspired you to do more than do better with women? Well, we know the hashtag is called change pays, change pays, and, and it really does pay to have that change. But what inspired us is that as we saw the women in our organization flourishing and we see the kinds of opportunities there are for people coming into the workforce, we really, really required us to, to take a stand, and we decided that we would do it, and we'd try to take a leadership role on this. All right, well, I mean, people should know two messages. One is this company has been radically transformed by Doug, and to make it so it's just a steady, fantastic earner, but also because of the message what he just said about women. Wouldn't it be something if we added how much to the economy? 1.8%, 1.6 trillion dollars and the total global market cap could be up 5.8 trillion dollars. I I hope you, that you keep spearheading this. This is terrific. Doug Peterson's the S&P Global President CEO. Fantastic numbers people. May have money's back after the break. It is time! It's time for the Labor Clippers! And then the lightning round is over. Are you ready, Ski Daddy? Time for the lightning round because we're going to start with Rachel Massachusetts. Rachel! Oh, hi, Jim. Thanks for taking my call. Um, I did buy Kronos a few weeks ago, and I'm wondering if it's a good midterm, long term. First of all, Rachel, congratulations. You just moved up a lot, but it's also a trading vehicle. So right now it's at the top end of the range. I think you can come back down, take some off the table tomorrow. Let's go to David in New Jersey. David. Jim, good evening. I'm calling about MTW Manitowoc. They had a great quarter. It is so cheap. It is so cheap. It just drives me crazy. But, you know, we're in a construction recession, I guess. I mean, holy cow. 12 times earnings. I'm not backing away from it down here, but I love dear Barry Pennypacker because he's a straight shooter. Let's go to Dave in Illinois. Dave. Dr. Kramer. Dave. Hey, congratulations, by the way, to your Eagles defensive end, Chris Long, on winning Chicago's own Walter Payton Man of the Year Award. Yeah, absolutely. I support his charities, and when you send him some money for his charity, he comes right back with a handwritten letter, made me feel like a million bucks. How can I help? Jim, my stock today is the missing link, not the Stephanie kind. Stafford, Doug, and I like, are you ready? Yeti Holdings, Y-E-T-I. Okay, so they're giving away, Dave, you love us. They're giving away these hot 
thermoses this morning, Spirit Air. It's like the most that you've ever gotten out of Spirit. And I go by, I, I, they're always giving away stuff. I don't think a thing of it. I get on and I said, were those Yeti? And the guy says, they were Yeti. I run out to get them. They're all taken. Because Yeti is a winner and I'm sticking with it. Thank you for the nice words. Let's go to David in Minnesota. David. Happy belated birthday. Booyah to you, Kramer. Thank you for those well-wishers. What's going on? For a 29-year-old investor, what is your opinion on the short and long-term play for the gene editing company CRISPR? I'm glad you distinguished between short and long. The short term, it seems to be under pressure a lot. The long term, I like the idea, and I think it can go higher. I will say that if you really want to be in that business, you should be in buying the stock of Illumina. I-L-M-N. Let's go to Michael in Florida. Michael. Mr. Kramer, my honor talking to you, sir. Right and, back at uh, you. Booyah, thank you for everything that you do. Thank you. My, quest- my question is uh, about Palo Alto Networks, P-A-N-W. Uh, I, I bought the stock. It's a cybersecurity stock. I bought it around uh, 180 in early January and added to it around 100, uh, 210 okay. uh, a couple days ago and, or a couple weeks ago. And my question to you is, what do you think of the stock? And well, I'm writing I- a speech about it oh, for, uh, to give Wednesday at 11.30 for part of AxelWorksPlus.com for the club. It's a central part of what I'm saying, which is that this was a, a bear market stock that went to a bull market and how to own it, how to trade it, and understand this is one, one difficult stock if you're going to look at it every minute, but not if you're going for the long term because it is best of breed. Let's go to John in South Carolina. John! Booyah, Jim, from beautiful Somerville, South Carolina. I've been there, and it is gorgeous. How can I help? It is gorgeous. And I'm uh, waiting 86 years now to get some information on a good pick. Okay. So uh, how do you feel about Etsy? Oh, Brooklyn's own Etsy. I think that this is the Kraft Amazon. Really good management. I would stick with that. And thank you so much for your kind words. And that, ladies and gentlemen, of the Lightning Round. The Lightning Round is sponsored by TD Ameritrade. these subtle rumblings that the economy might be headed into a recession. Maybe it's going to happen later this year. And you know what? I'm not buying it. Not one bit. Why is this downbeat idea even on the table? First, I've always said that you need to pay attention to the bond market. And right now, the Treasury yield curve is flashing a bright red warning signal. The 10-year currently yields 2.65%. That's remarkably similar to the short-term rates. When you get this kind of yield curve where eventually like the longer end actually goes below the shorter end, well, it usually means people are worried about the future and there's not much demand for money. Second, we're witnessing a worldwide slowdown. Okay, I get that. Sooner or later, that's going to engulf our economy, too, even though that has certainly not happened yet. Look at our job growth. Third, the trade war with China is bad for business, at least short term, and the president seems willing to put tariffs on any country that doesn't play fair, even if it means risking recession. Fourth, the decline in commodities, particularly oil, makes some investors worry because it might be signaling that recession is around the corner as supply overwhelms demand. Let's take these one by one. Normally, this inverted yield curve would be freaking me out, too. I've been around for a while, but we're not in normal times. Nearly every central bank around the world is trying to keep its rates low in order to spark growth. 
We tend to forget that money knows no borders. Fund managers from foreign countries are always searching for a safe source of yield. Right now, the United States is the best, most liquid bond market in the world, dramatically higher rates than most other developed countries. And I think that's why long-term interest rates are so low. For foreign buyers getting 2.65% for the 10-year, that's an incredible deal. So they're buying our treasuries hand over fist. In other words, the inverted yield curve isn't signaling a recession. It's just a function of what other central banks are doing around the globe and how institutions are trying to get some yield. How about the worldwide economic slowdown? All right, we have to recognize that a lot of the slowdown is indeed tied up with the dramatic deceleration in China, something that's caused by the trade war. China, because they keep stimulating. I mean, China's a huge consumer of products from all around the globe, but especially Europe. So if the Chinese are willing to make a deal and end the trade war, and I think the Trump administration's terms are actually pretty reasonable, their economy will pick up and the worldwide slowdown comes to an end. In the meantime, the German government seems totally averse to spending money. That's what you need to grow their economy. Italian recession, I think, more of a function of a totally dysfunctional government and ridiculous amount of interference into commerce by pretty much every authority in the country. Plus, Brexit keeps lingering as a drag on the growth for both the continent and Britain because it's created a staggering level of uncertainty that only Will Frost seems to really understand. Commodities, the Baltic bulk freight numbers, they show a dramatic decline in Chinese imports, and the decline continues. However, I totally balk at the idea that the recent sell-off in oil means anything for the global economy. The big hedge funds routinely short stocks when they see crude go down. Well, because of the possibility that lower oil might signal a recession. But they seem oblivious to the extraordinary amount of oil flowing out of the Permian Basin. So much oil that is depressing prices. In short, oil is all about supply here, not demand there. Ultimately, I find it hard to worry about a recession because we're no longer fighting the Fed. A couple of months ago, the Fed seemed woefully out of touch with the slowing economy. It's no longer the case. Fed Chief Jay Powell has finally figured it out. He's not going to tighten, slamming the brakes on the economy if the data continues to get soft, even if we still have robust job growth. That alone is enough to keep recession at bay. Listen, I'm worried about many things. I don't want another government shutdown, dramatic increase in tariffs, the super strong dollar hurts our exports. But I'm not joining the recession camp because the data just isn't there. Maybe we get more of a deceleration, but an actual recession, right now I find that very unlikely. Stick with Kramer. I witnessed the anatomy of one of the greatest short squeezes of all time, and it's EA Electronic Arts. First, they blow the quarter, and then they issue this Apex. Uh, the equivalent is a Battle Royale game, and it's got 10 million subscribers in like, in three days. And, well, it's going much higher. Like I said, there's always a bull market somewhere. I promise I'll find it just for you right here on Mad Money. I'm Jim Cramer, and I will see you tomorrow. I want people to feel like they just learned something. We have journalists in the far corners of the universe. I can't wait to get all of those resources under one hour-long newscast where we can deliver the facts of the day clearly and concisely in context and with perspective and tell people what's happening, what it all means. Get the truth, not the spin. The News with Shepard Smith. Subscribe to the podcast today.